Oh, my goodness, man. Told Albert earlier this morning, y'all trying to make a Baptist boy go Presbyterian. It's beautiful worship in this house. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Good morning, Redeemer. Would you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8? It is indeed an honor and a pleasure uh, to join you all for worship on this morning. Um, the 8 a.m. service um, nourished and refreshed my soul, and thus far the 11 a.m. has done the same. We will read this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 13. Would you please hear God's words? Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know, as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, in that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associates with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, have, sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak brother is destroyed, the brother from, for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, food makes my brother stumble. I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, doers of his holy and errant and infallible word. Would you pray with me, God? We love you. And we thank you for the privilege that we have to come before you and worship we thank you for the privilege that we have to sing songs to you in worship. We thank you for the privilege that we have to pray. We thank you for the privilege that we have to bring forth from your holy word, to proclaim it and to hear and receive it. These are all kind gifts, gifts from a kind king. And we thank you for them. God, we ask and we pray that now by your spirit, you would illuminate our understanding and open our hearts to receive from your word. Make the text plain in the hearts of your people and by your spirit, empower them, Lord God, to action 
And Father, where we fail to live out your holy and righteous truth, may we find grace at the foot of Jesus, the feet of Jesus. May we find, Lord God, righteousness outside of ourselves, but found in fullness in your Son. And may it be his righteousness and not our own that you see as we seek to live in honor of you, but we obviously do so imperfectly. And so help us, God. Help us this morning and help us beyond. Lord, we love you. And we thank you and we give you all the praise and all the glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Again, I bring you greetings from um, the great metropolis 45 minutes west of you in Vicksburg, Mississippi. My wife, Candy, and I um, are so grateful to have this privilege to worship with you this morning. We uh, were met with great kindness this weekend uh, by your church um, and, and by your, your pastor, uh, your, your uh, preaching pastor in particular, uh, my dear brother um, and his wife. We had a chance to hang out for dinner and uh, they are a phenomenal couple. He is a wonderful preacher and pastor, uh, but he is also a good friend. And so I, I, thank, I thank you, brother, for your hospitality and your, your kindness to me and your refreshing of our souls, both my wife and I, on this weekend. Um, it really is a tremendous privilege to worship with you guys this morning. It's even a a uh, more special privilege to worship with you because you are celebrating 17 years of gospel life together, gospel fellowship, gospel ministry. And my wife and I, we are approximately 15 months older than you are. We, we celebrated 18 years in, in November. Um, and over the years as a, as a husband and as a pastor, one thing that I've come to realize, and actually we've both come to realize, is that as I'm sure some of you have, is that marriage and the church have a lot of similarities. A lot of similarities. One similarity I've been reflecting on as I was preparing to preach uh, this morning to you all is that, is that as I move out towards the 18th year uh, uh, or move out towards, uh, towards 18 years for, or 19 years for me and my wife and 18 years for, for you guys, one of the things I've been reflecting on is that it is essential that both churches and marriages never confuse duration with endurance. Never confuse duration with endurance. Churches like marriages can sometimes allow the length of time that they've been together to become a substitute for the work that they've done to stay together. Churches like marriages after years together can sometimes lose sight of the reality that threatens or the, or the reality that threats are always present around them that pose danger to the union, especially a union that has slowly been taken for granted. Churches like marriages after years together can be subject to the world pressing in on them from different sides and angles and distracting them even from the work that God has ultimately called them to, the original vision, the original purpose for uniting, allow, and, and, and allowing the world to chip away at the bedrock of unity that was first established in them. Churches like marriages after years together can get caught in the web of the counsel of the surrounding culture and lose sight of the covenant that binds them. And duration does not protect us from that. 
Even 20 years of marriage, if not continuously and carefully attended to, can go up in smoke in a matter of months. And we are in an age and we are in a time where similar things can happen to a church, especially a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational church, if it is not continuously and carefully attended to. So my attention this morning is to celebrate with you and remind you to continue on not only with the duration of 17 years in the backdrop, but the endurance that you committed to walk in from the very beginning of those 17 years. This text gives us, uh, us, us a little help in pursuing such endurance. So the first question many of you may have as we, are, as we walk through this text this morning and you heard my opening is, how is eating food offered to idols have anything to do with, you, with what you just said? How is that going to help a 17-year-old multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multicultural church continue to endure and remain united in a world continue that is committed to rip us apart? Let me offer you a little background on this text. Picking up in verse 1, if you would read with me the very first section, now concerning food offered to idols. The now concerning is significant here for us. Each time you see it in this letter, it represents a shift in Paul's writing to a new subject. So we're picking up at the beginning of one of those shifts to a new subject. However, it's also significant because, as some of you know, 1 Corinthians is actually a letter of response to an earlier letter that Paul received from the Corinthians. We learn this in chapter 7, verse 1, where we hear now concerning for the very first time. Chapter 7, verse 1, it says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So it appears Paul is taking the letters that have been written to him by the Corinthian church before this letter that he's currently writing, and he is taking those letters and he's addressing certain issues that the church is looking to him for answers. So what is this new subject that Paul is turning his attention to that's on the mind of the Corinthian church? Again, chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. So the Corinthians are writing Paul about the connection between idolatry and the food offered to idols. Is there harm in eating such food? Well, it appears that pagan worship in ancient Corinth was actually extremely widespread. There's a lot of rituals performed in worship of false gods, and probably a lot of those rituals were, uh, were there were sacrifices uh, that were being performed, and the meat from those sacrifices were being used in feasts to honor those false gods. And on other occasions, the meat from the sacrifices would, uh, the leftover meat from the sacrifices would appear in the marketplace to be sold at a discount uh, for normal cooking and normal eating. So we got multiple layers here to this subject that Paul confronts over the course of three chapters. And yes, he does confront it over the course of three chapters. And that should give you an indicator that what Paul has to talk about is deeper than dietary restrictions if he spends three chapters of this letter covering food offered to idols. So what are some of the layers to this subject that Paul is addressing? Here's one layer. Should we participate and eat meat at a pagan feast when the meat was sacrificed in worship to an idol prior to consumption? And then the consuming is an act of consummating worship, so to speak. It is the completing work of the worship. Should we participate in something like that? 
Here's another layer. Should we participate in a private meal in a home of an unbeliever who doesn't see the food as idolatrous and has maybe just purchased some of the unused meat at a discount because he could get a great deal on meat? And he, you know, purchased it, brought it home. He's cooked it. He's invited me to come and eat. Should I eat it then? And then here's another layer, a third layer, if you will. Should we eat meat if we are having dinner with a group of believers who came out of a life of idolatry and have been so impacted by their former indulgence in that idolatry that even though they are now walking with Jesus and have freedom in Christ, they can't push themselves to eat the food because it just connects them too clearly to that former experience. Those are different layers that Paul is working with over the course of these three chapters regarding food offered to idols. And all of these layers are likely in play in some way in Paul's discussion on the topic. And they're also probably likely in play in the letters that the Corinthians wrote to Paul. In particular, they probably were in play when the Corinthians wrote to Paul. and They said, hey, listen, Paul, we have freedom in Christ. And if God has declared something clean, what are we talking about? What more is there to say? Who cares if it was in the temple? Who cares if it's at the marketplace? Who cares if they're unbelievers or or believers? It was clean, right, Paul? That's what you told us. That's what you taught us. This is what Paul is seeking to address. And what he has to say, believe it or not, is extremely important to you and I. So what does he say? He starts with this. He acknowledges the fact that the knowledge that they have concerning this food is right knowledge, and the freedom that they have regarding this food is right freedom. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 again, verse 1, look with me. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Many people believe that Paul is quoting the Corinthians here. In other words, Paul is saying that some of the Corinthians are out here saying, we know that this food is harmless to us. And we know that there is no demon in the Tuesday Temple Steak Night steaks. We know that. Plus, we like a great steak, just like the next guy. And we even like more a great cheap steak. And so here we have a great cheap steak that we can eat. We know there's nothing wrong with it. So what's the big deal, Paul? In fact, Paul... Thanks to your discipleship, we know that. We know that we no longer have to worry about what's clean and what's unclean. Thanks to your discipleship, we have freedom in Christ like you told us. And you know what? In large part, they're right. In Christ, we are no longer defined by the food that we eat. We are not clean or unclean based on the food that we eat. And Jesus affirms that truth. Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Romans chapter 14, verse 14 says, Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. The clue being in itself. Paul even acknowledges this truth later in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. So Paul says, yes, I agree. Food doesn't get you any closer or any farther from God through Christ. You guys have been given both knowledge and you've been given freedom. Now, that might not be news to some of you in this room, 
But for many in Paul's ancient audience and some even in our modern audience, this is significant news. There are many people who believe that there, that there are dietary restrictions and not holding to those dietary restrictions can lead to one being clean or unclean. And so this is significant news for many. But here's another truth that Paul acknowledges that the Corinthians actually get right. Look at verse 4. He says this, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Here again, it appears that Paul is quoting the Corinthians as they say, we know that idols have no standing before God. And we know that there is only one God, the triune God. Verse 5, it says this, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Yes and amen, Paul says to that. Again, not necessarily news to most of us. But for the Corinthians and for the surrounding, uh, the, the Corinthians who were in this culture and to some ancient, not ancient, but modern day cultures, this is news. Because in the Corinthian culture, there is a polyistic culture, a polytheistic culture rather, a polytheistic understanding of the world. People who thought that there were different gods that held control over different things. And, 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 and yet, here are the Corinthians proclaiming that there is one God who has created all things, and through whom all things exist. Yes and amen. Here's another important observation. I'm building something here. We're going somewhere. Here's another very important observation. Paul doesn't have any big corrections on the facts surrounding their knowledge. There's no theological quibbles. There's no technicalities to correct. They have right knowledge, and Paul affirms that and acknowledges their knowledge. And yes, they have freedom in Christ. And Paul acknowledges and affirms that as well. So from what we've read in this passage, it appears that Paul has no major qualms with the details around the Corinthians' knowledge. So what is the issue? And here's where you all need to lean in really closely. Because the acknowledgement, there's not an issue with Christian freedom and Christian knowledge. The issue is that the Corinthians don't understand that that's not enough. Christian freedom, Christian knowledge, not enough. Paul says again, chapter 8, verse 1, look there with me. This knowledge puffs up, but love Bills up. Now, the ESV takes a little bit of liberty here by placing the word this in front of the knowledge. Most versions don't include that, and reading it into the text can almost confuse us, in a sense, from the actual issue here. It's, it's not necessarily a certain kind of knowledge that is driving a wedge into the Corinthians. It is the misuse of knowledge that is driving a wedge into the Corinthians. It's a knowledge that is severed from love. You see, Paul acknowledges their knowledge. He acknowledges their freedoms. The danger isn't in the facts. 
The danger is that there is a certain kind of knowledge accumulation that can be established apart from love. There's a certain kind of knowledge accumulation that can be established apart from sacrifice. A certain kind of knowledge accumulation that can be established in such a way that, it, that, that more often than not, it will invite pride. And when it invites pride, it brings with it division and even spiritual abuse. You see, the word phrase puffed up here means to inflate one's own understanding of themselves, to boost up one's perception of themselves to themselves. And knowledge can have such a debilitating effect on us. It can, that kind of debilitating effect on us, it can have the kind of debilitating effect of convincing you that just because you're right, your voice is the only voice that matters in the room. Saints of God, knowledge isn't a bad thing, but when divorced from love, it becomes a dangerous thing. Knowledge truly is power, but when divorced from love, it becomes a dangerous power. As one of the early church fathers puts it, when knowledge is without love, it lifts men up to absolute arrogance. You see, knowledge carries the power to build others up, but when it operates without love, it will only pursue the building up of its possessor, even at the cost of tearing down others around them. This use of knowledge, however, is not just simply dangerous saints, but this use of knowledge is pervasive. I mean, without even realizing it, we've adopted this form or this manner of, of use of knowledge in our culture. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I scroll through my social media feeds and I see Christians joyfully and gleefully echoing the voices of the culture saying things like, facts don't care about your feelings. Or, baby, I'm just telling you what God loves, the truth. Brothers and sisters, facts may not care about your feelings, but love should. Brothers and sisters, God does, in fact, love the truth, baby. But you know what he loves even more? The truth wrapped in love and drenched in grace. Listen to Paul's words in verse 2 and verse 3, or verse 2 for now, as he shows us the value of love. He says this, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. This is an amazing verse. Because what Paul is saying is that you can have knowledge, but if that knowledge only leads to arrogant displays, and if that knowledge only leads to one-upmanships, or if that knowledge only leads to endless, well, actually, you know what I mean, that's not necessarily, and you're just constantly correcting people. Or if that knowledge only leads to a self-centered display of rights, then Paul is saying, you don't know what you think you know. To embrace knowledge, even biblical knowledge, apart from love, is to, is to have a suppressed understanding of who God is and what God has called you to. Remember Jesus' double call to love. Love God with everything you have and love neighbor uh, as yourself. And on these two hang all the law and hang all the prophets. Do you understand what's happening here? All the knowledge of God 
hangs on love. You separate love from God's knowledge, and it's no longer God's knowledge. You don't know what you think you know, Paul is saying. We walk in godly wisdom and godly knowledge only when knowledge leads us to deeper love for God and deeper love for others and deeper humility and deeper sacrifice. If it does not lead to those things, it doesn't matter how much you know. You don't know like you think you know. But also, here's another sobering point that Paul makes. Not only do you not know like you think you know, but you are not known like you think you are known. He says it in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul makes a bold contrast here. He's basically saying some of you appear to concentrate more on what you know rather than who you love. Did you see the contrast? He talks about knowledge, and then he talks about loving God. And basically, he's saying, you're concentrating more on what you know than who you love. And that contrast invites a very sober reflection for us, and it's this that Paul is saying to us. We can know a lot about God, but if we are void of love for God and love for others, we lack the greatest knowledge of all, and that is God knowing us. See, saying some of us have been fooled into thinking that wisdom is just all facts, all content. But brothers and sisters, facts that lead to selfish ambition in your heart is earthly wisdom, unspiritual wisdom, even demonic wisdom. According to the, God, uh, the book of James, the letter of James, he writes to the church and he says in chapter 3, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Listen to this. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, true wisdom is good content wrapped in something. True wisdom is not good content wrapped in bitterness and selfishness and arrogance, according to James. True wisdom is good good content wrapped in good conduct and meekness. It's a posture. It's an attitude. It is a desire to see the good of others. James says if your wisdom, your knowledge, your facts, your content doesn't contain that, then it's not true. So, What does it look like when we truly get this? What does it look like for us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to truly get this? What happens when we realize and embrace that knowledge is not enough? What happens when we realize and we embrace that that freedom is not enough? It totally changes how we exercise our freedoms. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, look with me again. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So, sure, yes, you may have a right to do it. You may have a right to say it. You may even have a right to post it. 
But true knowledge, wrapped in love, is constantly asking the question, what will it do to my brothers and my sisters? How will it impact those around me? Paul has this in mind in chapters 8 through 10, where some of the most popular memory verses in the collective Christian conscience lives and resides. Let's look, at, let's look quickly at a couple of those, those memory verses, because they help us understand what happens when we truly get this right. Starting in chapter 10, verse 31, flip there if you, if you have your Bibles or scroll there if you're working through your app. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, it says this. This is what happens when we truly get this right. One thing that happens is we more accurately glorify God. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, again, as I said earlier, chapters 8 through 10, Paul is dealing with this issue of Christian liberty Christian knowledge and Christian love and the connection between all of them, all right? So what does this verse have in mind? Well, for many of us, when we hear this verse, we picture ourselves sitting on our couches with a great glass of Chardonnay, watching Netflix, one of the great TV shows that we've been watching. As we sip our Chardonnay and watch this great show, we say, praise be to God. For this glorious wine in this wonderful show, I am glorifying God in all that I do. And of course, it could mean that in part, right? But that's not what Paul has actually in mind immediately here. That's not the main thing that Paul has in mind. So let's read the next two verses and we find out what he has in mind. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul's still dealing with the same issue. He's talking about pushing the plate back if it requires it. And so what does Paul have in mind in this moment? Not picking up pleasure and thanking God for that pleasure. Of course, we give glory to God for all of the pleasures, the good pleasures and the good enjoyment that he offers us. But what he has immediately in mind is the relinquishing of a pleasure and offering thanks to God that your sacrifice is offering an opportunity for someone to see Jesus put on high display. That's what's happening here. While the culture screams, you can't live your life trying to please everybody, Paul in verse 32 and 33 coolly responds, because I'm seeking to glorify God with my life, I try to please everyone in everything I do. Now that's not intended to be taken as Paul being a people pleaser. It is meant to point to the fact that Paul uses every right, every freedom, every knowledge that he possesses to serve others. When his freedom gets in the way of serving the Greek, Paul says, I'm going to lay it down. When his freedom gets in the way of serving the Jew, Paul says, I'll lay that down. When his freedom gets in the way of serving the church of God, Paul says, I will lay that down. I'm not going to obstruct God's glory. I'm not going to get in the way of people being able to see God's glory in its fullness. That's his point. You see, we obstruct the view of God's glory when we pick up our freedoms without regard for others. When you see some of the 
some of the vileness and some of the hatred and some of the hurt and some of the bitterness towards the, uh, towards the American church. Don't just be so quick to say, well, people are just rejecting Jesus. Sometimes. But sometimes they're just rejecting us. Because we are obstructing God's view. We're obstructing the glory based on constantly snatching and grabbing and fussing and arguing and clawing and talking about rights and freedoms and talking about knowledge and just, oh, listen to me and listen to how I talk and how smart I am. That obstructs God's view, saints. Now, we unveil God's glory when we sacrifice our freedoms for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. And this is what Paul is encouraging us towards. Another lesson we learn in, this cha- in these three chapters, because I told you I was going to give you two examples. Here's the second example. We more accurately become all things to all people when we actually get this. There's another familiar passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Flip there or scroll there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Paul says this, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. That's a popular passage. What is it saying? Now, Paul spends the first half of chapter 9 using himself as an example in this ongoing discussion about knowledge and about rights. And this is what he basically says in the first half of chapter 9. You guys talk about knowledge, but here's what I know. I know that I can get and should be getting paid. Scripture, and then Paul goes into explaining why. Scripture tells us to let the ox that tread eat from the labor of treading. He goes on and he uses an example of war. He says, no soldier tells us, or no soldier fights a war for a country on his own dime. And then he tells us what Jesus says. And he says, Jesus even said that those who labor in the gospel should reap from the gospel work. So Paul is basically saying, I know, I know that God allows me to eat from my work. And yet, just as we are expecting Paul to ask for money, he turns the whole argument on his head and he says, but I will not exercise that right because I don't want to put an obstruction in the way of the gospel. Now, before you all, get, all gather in the next church meeting to start figuring out what you're going to do about Elbert's check, let's, let's bring some clarity to what's going on here. What most scholars have in mind or believe Paul has in mind here is that there was a mentality in the culture of Corinth where giving money to a person communicated a kind of loyalty where you could expect the person to do your bidding later on down the road. And for Paul, he was basically saying, I know I should be paid, but if your payment is going to put any obstruction in the way of the gospel, I don't want the money. You know, we often read passages like these and we think to ourselves, what Paul is doing is he's talking about 
you know, the kind of contextualization where you change your dress, you change your style of worship, you lay down unnecessary traditions and customs for the sake of the weaker brother. That's part of it. But what Paul is saying, if we told Paul that's what we were doing, Paul would be like, man, that's nothing. (laughs) I'm giving them checks back. That I'm so committed to not putting an instruction in front of the Jew or in front of the Greek or in front of those outside of the law, that I'm willing to give up my livelihood. I'm willing to lay down whatever right I possibly need to required for the Jew to be open and edified by the gospel or for those outside of the law to be open and edified by the gospel. In other words, when Paul talks about becoming all things to all people, it is not simply dressing cooler or more laid back on Sunday mornings. That could be in view according to the context, but what is ultimately in view is laying down any freedom that would either cause my brother to stumble or cause the unbelievers around me to miss the actual message of the gospel, no matter what that right is. That's Paul's point. So what freedoms and rights, saints, are you currently holding on to based on your collective knowledge that may bring you pleasure, delight, Happiness, but leads to the stumbling and discouragement of your brothers. You see, if your freedom in Christ doesn't move you towards using such freedom to help your brothers, then you have yet to understand your freedom, and you have yet to understand the one who has set you free. By now, I hope you see where Paul is going with all of this. I lay down my rights to glorify Christ, meaning my love for Jesus shapes how I exercise my knowledge and my freedom. I lay down my rights to become all things to all people, meaning my love for others shapes how I exercise my knowledge and my freedom. I lay down my rights in order that some may be saved, meaning my love for the gospel shapes how I exercise my knowledge and my freedom. Do you see? My love, my love. My love is shaping my knowledge and my freedoms. Does love do that for you? Does love move you to lay down your rights, even in your own homes? When husband and wife or wife and husband are having their dispute, does love move you to say, it's not that important that you be right, Crawford? Does it move you to that? Or does your right to be right matter more? Does love move you to lay down your rights for your weaker brother or your sister, your weaker sister? Or does that abrasive facts don't care about your feelings posture on social media matter more to you? Does love do that for you, saints? Real quickly, let's ask the question, what happens when love doesn't do that? What happens when we don't end up using our freedom and knowledge in this way? Chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. He says, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience. When it is weak, you sin against Christ. You see, when we operate selflessly, laying down our rights, Despite our knowledge, we show love for God, we show love for neighbor, and we show love for his gospel. 
But when we operate selfishly, clutching our rights in light of our knowledge, we show contempt for God, contempt for neighbor, and contempt for his gospel. See, in showing contempt for a brother who is stumbling through the idolatry of the past, there's something very interesting transpiring. Do you see that? Paul says you are not only sinning against your brother, but you're sinning against God when you do this. And so what's happening? You're showing contempt for your brother. You're basically saying, I don't know why he's getting all wrapped up in that idolatry stuff. There's, no, there's nothing going on with this steak, and if he don't like it, tough. I'm going to eat it anyway. He needs to get himself together and stop getting wrapped up in all these idols. But notice what's happening here. God says, Paul says, you're sinning against your brother, and you're sinning against God as you're doing it. Meaning that while you are criticizing and disregarding your brother's weaknesses regarding the idolatry of their past, you are now participating in your own form of idolatry. See, in that moment that we love our facts and love our food and love our drinks and love our social media posts and love our movies and love our rights and love ourselves more than we love our brothers and thus loving ourselves at that moment more than we love our God. It's textbook idolatry. Serious business. Happy anniversary, uh, Redeemer Church. Amen. <laughs> Serious business in this pulpit right now. So the final question for this morning is, in thinking about this, we don't want to do that. We want to look more like what Paul is laying out for us and less like what the world is driving us towards. Because this is the current that the world moves in, right? Clutching, grabbing, self, me, me, me. This is what the world moves us towards. So how do we look differently? Last thing. How can we grow more in our commitment to love over freedom and love over knowledge? That's the last question, and it's a quick answer. We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. You say, what do you mean? Well, Jesus, Jesus' love of us trumped his knowledge of us. Jesus' love of us trumped the exercising of his rights towards us. Jesus had perfect knowledge of us. Knowledge that we were indeed sinful and fallen in every single imaginable way. Knowledge that instead of grace and mercy with absolute allegiance, we would constantly stray from his perfect will and choose our own way even when that way led to more pain and more heartache for us. However, instead of acting on that knowledge and exercising his rights to all the comforts of his heavenly kingdom and exercising his right to judge us with eternal wrath in hell, he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He became poor and he took our punishment on the cross in order that we might be set free. He knew us and yet he loved us. His knowledge wasn't wrong, but love trumped it. Jesus knows what it means to choose love over the exercising of his rights because he did it for you and he did it for me. 
So every time we're tempted to choose ourselves over others, we can look to Jesus and we can find a reason to sacrifice our rights for love. Every time we're tempted to choose ourselves over others, we can look to Jesus and we can find a reason to love instead of just simply having to be right. The first question I should ask when deciding whether to give up my rights to give up uh, or to give up my enjoyment or to give up my comfort for another should not be, why would I give up my rights for this person? No, the first question should be, how could Christ give up his rights for me? And this question should constantly reverberate in our souls. Like the great song, uh, the, great, the great hymn of old, where, it, where, it, where, it's, where, it, where it's written, he, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? It's that reverberation in Paul in verse 13 where he closes the chapter with these words, therefore if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He gets it, doesn't he? He sees what Christ has given up. He says, none of that matters to me. Post on social media, food, movies. Man, what do you need for me to lay down in order for you to see Jesus clearer? I'll lay it down for you. Because that's what my God has done for me. Let us pray, saints. Lord, we love you. We love you so much. God, we, we approach your throne with the clear awareness that we are sinners and that we have far too often sought our own good, pursued our own way, that we have far too often taken more glory and more satisfaction and knowledge of you, and knowledge about you, rather, than knowledge of you. We've taken too much satisfaction, Lord God, in exercising our right, whether it be in our home, whether it be in our community, whether it be in our church, and not laying them down for our love for you, our love for neighbor, and our love for your gospel. And so, Father, we confess to you now that we have indeed sinned. And yet, Lord, we are reminded afresh on this morning that you know that about us, that you know that about us. You clearly are aware of our failings, and yet, because of your immense grace, your immense mercy, your immense love towards us, you sent your son, and in sending him, he laid down the exercising of his rights, wrapped himself in human flesh, took the form of a servant, and was obedient all the way to the cross. 
may our gaze and may our eyes be fixed on him as we look to walk more closely to you. And Father, when we fail, because we will fail, may the same grace that saved us be the grace that restores us, picks us up, and puts us back on on the path to righteousness. God, we are grateful for you this morning. May you seal your word as it was accurately preached. Anything outside of you, Lord God, may it fall and die. But should there be something that was there from you, may it be planted, watered, and may it bring forth fruit a hundredfold. 